Hopefully you have a sermon note sheet in your bulletin. And on that sheet, you'll see the four questions that I've been using to help remind me to draw applications from the text in each of these messages. Before we continue our survey of the book of Exodus today, let's do a quick review of the last message. Previously, we covered Exodus chapters 11, 12, and 13 through verse 16, which is the 10th plague and the initial stage of the Exodus from Egypt. If you recall, the Holy Spirit repeated the phrase, with a strong hand, the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt seven times in chapters 12 and the first half of chapter 13. Seven times. The application that I drew from that was that because we are so forgetful, God repeats highly important truths over and over again. Since our sinful tendency is to forget them, and when we forget, we drift away living outside of God's truth. Therefore, it is key, it is paramount that we saturate our minds with the word of God. We must think on those things that are unseen. We must gaze upon eternal things, things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And all of those things are personified in Jesus, our loving heavenly shepherd, the one who watches over his little flock, not just by night, but always. Well, I have to admit that at this point in our survey of the book of Exodus, I'm truly vexed given the fact that Cecil B. DeMille did such a fantastic job of depicting the Red Sea crossing in the epic movie, The Ten Commandments, that I've got tough competition. But in addition, I'm going to open a Pandora's box of sorts that may be difficult to seal shut once it is open. So I ask you to pray for me. But short of simply surrendering and showing that scene from the movie, I will do my best to draw some relevant and meaningful insights from the text. So where to start? It was a dark and stormy night. Oh, wait, that's not right. Um, Hold on a second. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. That's not it either. Oh, wait, I said, let's start at Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, where we read, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. In the video series, Patterns of Evidence, the Exodus, which Ben Loomis guided us through in our Wednesday evening Bible studies, most of the secular and liberal scholars who even believed that an exodus occurred maintained that the route taken was towards the north, towards the land of the Philistines, because that was a shorter, more direct route. However, as we read here, the Holy Spirit plainly tells us that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. And in verse 18, we read, 
But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Wait a minute. Now, because the second half of verse 17 reads, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt, one commentator that I read made a really good suggestion, I think. And that's that the word translated battle at the end of verse 18 should really be translated travel. So a more accurate rendition of that verse 18 would be, and the people of Israel went out of the land of Egypt prepared to travel. All right. Now, verses 19 through 22. We read there the following. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones when you, with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night because they had a longer way to go than up towards Philistine. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. If I may, I would like to suggest that God is being just a bit romantic here. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 3, in the first part of verse 6, we read, What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? which we learn in the next verse, that it was Solomon's carriage arriving for his wedding. And it wasn't smoky because his catalytic converter was broken. Like a bridegroom coming to whisk away his new bride, God is escorting Israel from her stepfather's house, the house of bondage in Egypt, to travel together to their new home. The new bride clings to the arm of her betrothed as they run away together. The bridegroom leads his beloved with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to ensure that she doesn't get lost. As they flee together from her former estate, leaving it behind forever, never to return. Now, as we begin chapter 14, we read in the first four verses, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahoroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. God is not just foreknowing what Pharaoh will say and do. For as his maker, God knows Pharaoh better than he knows himself. Verse 5 reads, When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done? that we have let Israel go from serving us. Notice what verse 5 does not say. It does not say 
that Pharaoh and his servants changed their own minds. No, it says that their minds were changed toward the people. The Israeli slaves they had just driven out of Egypt. Who is it that changes minds and hearts? Yahweh, our God, the maker and sustainer of all things, the one and only God, the God who just humiliated all the vainly imagined gods of Egypt in the ten plagues that he smote them with just before they drove the Israelites out. It is that God who then changed their minds about the slave labor force they had just dispatched into freedom. I'm going to say a little more about why God changed their minds a little later. But for now, in verses 6 through 9, we are told that Pharaoh used all of, the, all of Egypt's chariots, every last one of them, in his insane, suicidal pursuit of the people of Israel. People he had already spent the entire Egyptian economy trying to keep enslaved. We read how the Lord hardened his heart so that he and his army overtook the Israelites where they were encamped at the Red Sea by pi Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon, right where the Lord wanted them to show up. In that scene from the Ten Commandments, DeMille shows Pharaoh and all of his charioteers driving like madmen, determined to destroy the Israelites. They're not going to bring them back. They're going to kill them. But they were oblivious to the fact that they were racing to their own destruction. In verses 10 through 12, we read, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For, you have been bet- for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, in defense of the Israelites, it's only fair to say that they were rightly scared out of their wits. I mean, after all, they had been slaves for over 400 years now in Egypt. This was their first ever trip outside of the confines of Egypt. And now, while they're boxed in between Pi-Hahuroth, Baal-Zephon, and the Gulf of Aqaba, their former masters have chased them down, intent on slaughtering them. We can certainly understand why and how they would have thought this and been terrified at the sight of the greatest army on the face of the earth moving in for the kill. Now in verses 13 through 18, we read, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Forward? Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. All the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh 
his chariots, and his horsemen. A very interesting fact, as I see it, we often notice in Scripture is how many times God works through and alongside the means of men. Such as here, God is the one who's going to part the Red Sea, but he does so in conjunction with Moses lifting his staff and stretching out his hand over the sea. In verses 19 and 20, we read, Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Oh, so it was a dark and stormy night. Like the ultimate offensive lineman, whose job it is to protect his quarterback from the rushers and tacklers of the opposing team, here we see the angel of God move the pillar of cloud behind the host of Israel, positioning it between them and the army of Egypt. In verses 21 and 22 we read, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Again, notice the synergism here. The working together of two parties, God and Moses. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. There's an interesting miracle here that I didn't find mentioned in any of the commentaries. God instantly made the land bridge at the Gulf of Aqaba into dry land as soon as the water parted. The strong east wind that parted the sea didn't dry out the land bridge, that, for that would have taken days of exposure to the air to accomplish. No, the land bridge was immediately dry ground as soon as the waters parted. Another incredible miracle that only the maker of heaven and earth could conceive of and flawlessly accomplish. In verses 23 through 25 we read, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Game, set, match. God defined the game, set the bait, set and baited the trap, and then prepares to end the match with one final move against his enemy. Verses 26 through 28, we read, then the, Lord got, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. 
in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David learns that Saul and Jonathan have been killed by the Philistines. And he repeats three times in a lament, a phrase which is very applicable here. How the mighty have fallen. For Pharaoh and his army were the most powerful human army on earth at that time. Indeed, how the mighty had fallen. Finally, in verses 29 through 31, we read, But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Ah, it was indeed both the best of times and the worst of times. Now, the first of the four questions on your handout and your bulletin reads, what was the subject of today's message? The title of today's message was the Red Sea Crossing. But that's not the subject. The subject of today's message is the question, is God good? Is God good? Some of you may have heard of the theological term theodicy. In the philosophy of religion, a theodicy is an, is an effort to vindicate God and absolve him of guilt regarding the existence of evil. The indictment goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good, then how is it that evil exists? The 18th century Scottish philosopher David Hume posed the problem this way when he stated, if God is omnipotent, omniscient and completely good, why is there evil? If God would like to prevent evil but cannot, then he is not omnipotent. If he can prevent evil but does not, then he is not good. There is a flaw in that reasoning, but more on that a little later. That idea did not originate with David Hume. He was merely reiterating an ancient trilemma that had been posed by the Greek philosopher Epicurus around 300 BC. And Epicurus stated it this way, if God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he is not all powerful. If God is able to prevent evil but not willing, then he is malevolent. He's evil himself. If God is both able and willing to prevent evil, then where did evil come from? Why is it here? If God is neither able nor willing to prevent evil, then why call him God? I still remember the first time I heard allegations like these. As a fairly new believer, they shook my faith to its core because, at first glance, there seemed to be no possible way to defend God against such charges. To my ears, God had just been indicted as if by a formidable grand jury and there was no way that he could plead not guilty. It caused a sick 
sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. It was as if God and I were both sitting in adjacent cells on death row, and I couldn't come to his defense, and he could do nothing to help himself either, or so it seemed to me at the time. But wait, the present-day indictments are much worse. I'll elaborate on that more in a bit, but first, for some modern historical context. On January, on January 12th, 1967, wow, Ken, that's like over 57 years ago. On January 12th, 1967, a new science fiction TV show, Star Trek, aired the 17th episode of its first season. And the title of that episode was The Squire of Gothos. In the story, the Enterprise was on an eight-day supply mission to the Colony Beta-6. And while they are passing through a region of space devoid of stars, they suddenly come upon a lone planet that their sensors had not even detected until they arrived right on top of it. As Lieutenant Sulu attempted to establish an orbit around the planet, he suddenly vanished from the bridge. And a few moments later, Captain Kirk vanished as well. Well, the rest of the crew assumed that they had both been taken down to the planet, so a landing party was sent down to search for them. Kirk and Sulu were found in the company of a male humanoid who called himself General Trelane. Trelane eventually explained that his hobby was studying Earth history. However, everything he knew about Earth was over a thousand years old, which made sense since his planet was located almost a thousand light years away from Earth. The crew managed to get back to the Enterprise, but as they attempted to flee the planet, it kept reappearing right in front of them. Trelane brought Kirk back down to the planet and tried him for treason, and of course found him guilty. Then after toying with the captain in a hide-and-seek game, Trelane was about to execute Kirk when two glowing bodiless beings appeared and ordered Trelane to come in now. Like a naughty little boy who had been caught torturing small animals, Trelane protested that he was just having fun. But his parents insisted that he come along, and then they apologized to Kirk for their son's misbehavior. The implications of that story were clear. The God of the Old Testament just might have been only an immature, naughty little boy from a higher race of beings who was just having fun with the Israelites and the Egyptians. In 2014, Ridley Scott directed the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. In that movie, Yahweh is played by an 11-year-old boy who often sounds like a petulant little brat with a chip on his shoulder. In a scene just before the 10th plague, Yahweh is talking with Moses and he spews the following line from his mouth. These pharaohs who imagine they're living gods, they're nothing more than flesh and blood. I want to see them on their knees begging for it to stop. Begging for the plagues to stop. When the young boy playing Yahweh tells Moses what the 10th plague will entail, Moses vehemently objects. Moses then goes to warn Pharaoh of the coming night of death. He tells Pharaoh to slaughter a lamb and to paint the doorposts of his house with its blood. For you see, this version of Moses 
was far more tender-hearted, kind, caring, considerate, and conscientious than the petulant, temper-tantrum-throwing Yahweh was. These views did not occur in a vacuum. For the liberal, liberalism that was produced by the Enlightenment saw God, the God of the Old Testament, as a vicious, harsh ogre, brutal and downright evil. From their perspective, Yahweh was nothing more than a petty, vengeful, tyrannical demigod. And here in chapter, chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Exodus, we see God appearing to toy with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, much the way cats often play with mice before killing them. And so the question had been asked, is God good? If God is wholly good, if there is no evil, no shadow of turning in him, then what do we make of this behavior? Is it righteous, holy, and just for God to deal with Pharaoh and the Egyptian army in this manner? Isn't it just a bit much? So not only do we have the problem of the existence of evil, but in this case, God appears to be evil himself, malevolently destroying Pharaoh and his army, and all for one last splash of glory. This is the Pandora's box that I spoke of earlier. As D.A. Carson put it in a talk that he gave at the 2009 Ligonier National Conference, if a person always wants to be the center of attention, insists that everyone else always praises and adores him or her, we call that person a narcissist. Is God so insecure that he always needs to be the center of our attention? I'll give you Carson's reply to that charge in a bit. But first, if you would turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I'll start reading at verse 14. I'll read verses 14 through 18, make a comment, and then read verses 19 through 24. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then... It does not depend on the person who wants it, nor on the one who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up, in order to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be, might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Paul's defense of God is simply God's sovereignty. As your creator of all things, God is free to do with the creatures he has created as he see, sees fit. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? 
What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, namely us, whom he also called not only from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Paul anticipated the objection of a, that a skeptic might raise, and he voiced his or her rejection for them. If God is completely sovereign, then it would seem that we have no choice but to do what he has foreordained for us to do. So then how can he punish us for the evil that we do if we are foreordained to do it? For why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? To answer that objection, Paul channels the yet unborn Greta Thunberg with her, his paraphrase of her, how dare you? How dare you presume that you, a sinful creature, have the right or the capacity to pass judgment upon your maker? Who are you, you foolish person who answers back to God? To answer back to God, to sass God, is the same as questioning the justice of his decrees and equivalent to indicting him, charging him with wrongdoing. <clears throat> as a slightly tangential point, it is not only the obstinate and the extreporous who answer back to God. I'm guilty of it too. On a regular basis, every time I'm angry because something doesn't go my way, a traffic light turns yellow, then red as I'm approaching it. Or the line at the checkout stand next to the line that I'm in moves faster than my line. I am answering back to God. I'm questioning the justice of his decrees. I'm judging his plans to be unacceptably poor because they don't meet my expectations. I'm acting the part of the fool who thinks that he can judge his maker and answer back to God. The goodness of God is indivisibly one with all his other attributes. His omniscience is a good omniscience. His omnipotence is good. His love, his omnipresence, his mercy, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his, yes, and his justice and his wrath are all good. All of, it, all of his attributes are holy and good, righteous and glorious. All of his attributes are so maximally perfect that they are eternally perfect, unchangeable, immutable, splendidly glorious, stunningly magnificent, and infinitely praiseworthy. The wisdom of his plans are beyond our comprehension. But to sinful creatures like ourselves, God's furious wrath may appear as though it is unjust just a bit over the top, or sometimes even way over the top. The passion of his anger may appear to be out of control the way that a blind rage of an insane person is out of control. Why is that? Well, turn to Psalm 50, if you would. <clears throat> As Asaph told us in Psalm 50, I'll read verses 19 through 21. 
You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You thought that I was one like yourself. We think that God is just like us. That's part of our sinful depravity. But God is not just like us. And at the deepest subconscious level, God's holy wrath terrifies us. Why? Because we know full well that we deserve to be the objects of that wrath. As it says in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. All of us, brothers and sisters, are in the hands of the living God. Or as Jonathan Edwards so aptly put it, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. Yet we so easily nod off spiritually and forget the terror of the Lord. Oh, I almost forgot. I promised to tell you how D.A. Carson answered the indictment. Is God so insecure that he always needs to be the center of our attention? Well, actually, in the answer he gave to that, he cited John Piper. And I'll paraphrase for you what he said, because it would take too long to read the entire quote verbatim. Dr. Carson said, we were made by God for himself. And when our relationship with God is right, we are devout worshipers of him. We love him supremely and adore him unendingly. It is a merciful act of love on God's part. It is a merciful act of love on God's part to demand that we continually love, adore, and worship him. Because it is for our own good that we do so. Since doing so is what we were made for. It is our prime directive. When God demands our worship, our compliance is merely the fulfillment of our primary purpose in life. The manifestation of our true destiny. Worship is what we were made for, and God is the one that we were made to worship. God isn't insecure or a narcissist. We are the ones who act like narcissists when we get angry at or suspicious of God. Our contempt for God is the irrefutable evidence of our total depravity. Far from being narcissistic, we see the ultimate humility demonstrated by Jesus in his selfless act of sacrificial substitutionary atonement for our sins on the cross. That's essentially an end of the paraphrase of Dr. Carson. That we could even conceive of questioning the character and motives of God is incontrovertible evidence of just how insane our sinfulness really is. Yet, instead of blushing in shameful embarrassment, we get indignantly furious when God doesn't meet our expectations. How dare he? That, brothers and sisters, is wickedness personified. We're acting just like Jonah did in chapter 4, verse 9, when God asks him, 
do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Who is the one acting like a petulant little brat throwing a temper tantrum? Jonah? Me? Maybe you too? Before we go back to the first of the four questions, let me make another comment about verse 5 in Exodus 14. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of the Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? Why did God change their minds like this? God was going to ensure that the Egyptians didn't keep following and harassing the Israelites or worse, sneak up on them in a defenseless location to mow them down and destroy them in retribution for their leaving Egypt. No, God was going to end the Egyptian claim on the nation of Israel by destroying Pharaoh and all of the hosts of his armies so that the rest of the people of Egypt would know beyond any shadow of a doubt that from then on, the Israelites belonged to Yahweh. They were no longer the property of the Egyptians. This final demonstration of God's power would deter Egypt from attempting to make any future claims against the people of Israel. Why? Because God is good, and he was securing the national identity of his people. So getting back to the first of the four questions, what is the subject of today's message? The subject of today's message was the rhetorical question, is God good? The answer, I I hope you know what it is, the answer is a yes, of course God is good. What's the problem? The problem's with us. We are not good. And one of the hallmarks of our wickedness is that we call good evil and evil good. And that is exactly what we do every time we question God, every time we become suspicious of his motives or get angry with him because his plans don't meet our expectations. When we rebel like that, we reverse the roles. We become the judge. And as we judge God, we're calling his goodness evil. The second question on the notes page reads, what response did the message ask of me? Become aware of when and how I judge God. Stop it and repent for doing so. Become aware of when and how I judge God. Stop it and repent for doing so. The third question on the notes page reads, was a how-to given to me for responding appropriately? The answer, remember that God is good and he has my best interest in mind. Therefore, I must repent and cling tenaciously to the arm of my heavenly bridegroom. Remember that God is good and has my best interest in mind. Therefore, I must repent and cling tenaciously to the arm of my heavenly bridegroom. In the second chapter of the book of Revelation, we read the letter to the first of the seven churches, the church of Ephesus, starting in Revelation 2, verse 1. 
To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have left, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember that God is good and has my best interest in mind. Therefore, I must repent and cling tenaciously to the arm of my heavenly bridegroom. But how do I remember the original state of blissful first love that I had for my Lord Jesus when I first believed? Especially if I do not have a journal in which I recorded my conversion experience. And even if I did have a record of that event and how I felt when I first believed, would rereading it, could rereading it, rekindle the flame of that original passion? Could it revive my first love? Or might rereading it merely sound like something that happened to somebody else a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? Brothers and sisters, the first love of the American church has grown so cold that well-preserved mastodons can be found buried in its inner layers. If we truly want to jettison the weighty sins which cling so closely to us and have turned us into Mr. and Mrs. Freeze, if we want to be free to run the race set before us with the Holy Ghost endurance that is required to successfully run that race, then we must stop looking on the things that are seen and shift our gaze toward the things that are unseen, the eternal things, the things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Those things that are alone personified in the only perfect man who ever lived, the God-man, our loving heavenly shepherd, Jesus Christ, the one who keeps watch over his little flock, not just by night, but always. And the only place we can find those eternal things is in his eternal word. Lastly, the fourth question on the notes page of your bulletin reads, was a time frame given for how long the how-to might take to complete this task? As we think about the how-tos and how long they might take, we know that our sanctification is a lifelong struggle, a never-ending endeavor, and that a fixed, finite time period is unrealistic and yet inadequate at the same time. For even though my sanctification will never be completed during my lifetime, I don't know the moment that my life will end. As I commented on the 10th plague in the previous message, 
when he visited God's judgment on the Egyptians, the death angel came very swiftly to fulfill the promise that God had made to Adam when he told him that in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death is often like that, swift, inevitable, irreversible, and inescapable. So we dare not put off to tomorrow what we can do today. Brothers and sisters, let us remember the warning from the writer of the, Hebrew, the book to the Hebrews. In chapter 3, verse 13, we read, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Even though our sanctification is a lifelong endeavor that we never finish in this lifetime, revival, a reawakening to vibrant spiritual life, a return to our first love, can and will come very swiftly if God brings it. We can't make revival happen, but we can certainly earnestly seek God and ask him, indeed beg him, to bring revival to us. Have we been begging God with all of our hearts for genuine Holy Ghost revival, for real spiritual renewal? If not, could it be because we've become too comfortable in our present state? Are we comfortably numb? If we are to thaw out from this deep freeze, we must remember from where we have fallen and turn back to God in earnest repentance. We must see our sin as the word of God clearly shows it to be. But we won't see it for what it really is unless we think upon those things that are unseen and gaze upon eternal things. Things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. All the things that we find personified in Jesus, our loving heavenly shepherd, the one who watches over his little flock always. But we will not think upon heavenly things because we won't know them unless we saturate our hearts and minds with the word of God every day. Brothers and sisters, as members of the bride of Christ, May we cling tightly to our bridegroom's arm as we run together away from our deadness in trespasses and sins toward the promised land of eternity with the blessed Holy Trinity. Let us pray. Oh God, you have been kind to us. Enable us to continue in your kindness. Help us to more consistently think about, meditate upon, and do what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise as we saturate our minds in your word. Empower us by the indwelling Holy Spirit to use self-control and self-discipline to forsake the weighty besetting sins which cling so closely to us that they would chill us down to absolute zero if you did not give us aid. Assist us to run the race set before us with all the might and endurance required to run in a manner that is well-pleasing to you. And give us dry ground to run upon, as you did the Israelites as they passed through the parted Red Sea.
We ask you for all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.